You're listening to the Comic Book Informer Podcast with Vince and Raj, a podcast for everyone from comic nerds to comic noobs. You know who you are. Now here's your host, Vince. Hello, everybody, and welcome to issue 189 of the Comic Book Informer, where we care so much about putting out an episode two weeks in a row. We're recording early. And stopping our destiny session in order to record. That's even more important in my mind. <laughs> that there shows dedication. You know, apologies for the past couple of weeks. Uh, I work in retail, so once October and November hit, things get kind of crazy on my end. In addition to the normal stuff we're dealing with, such as destiny. <laughs> but we're trying our hardest, guys. So for this week's discussion, when we were talking about Gotham a couple weeks ago, I mentioned how there is an interesting story that can be told focusing on the non-Batman characters in the Batman universe. And instantly my mind went to a great series that started up in 2002 called Gotham Central, which focuses entirely on the Gotham Police Department. So I figured it'd be interesting to take a look at that this week. Uh, We're looking at the first 10 issues, actually. It's an interesting way that they... wrote and developed this story. It's written by Greg Rucka and Ed Brubaker, art by Michael Lark and Noel Giddings. And the way that they describe it, that uh, Rucka and Brubaker both knew that they wanted Michael Lark for their artist on this project, but he wasn't immediately available. So they sat down and wrote out a lot of the story ahead of time. So they actually collaborated on the first story arc, which was only two issues long. And then they split it up from there on with alternating story arcs with Ed Brubaker writing The Night Shift Detectives and Greg Rucka writing The Day Shift. How did you like that? I liked it a lot. I did. I I thought it worked really quite well. And we like both of these writers, which isn't to say that I didn't have some issues with some of what was going on, some of the way it was written. Um, And we'll get into that a little later on. But I actually really liked the way it was they handed it off to each other. It allows them to have a much larger cast while really giving the characters enough time because they're only focusing on one group in any specific story arc. And it really allows them each to have their own unique voices that are sometimes lost in larger, larger ensemble stories just because you have to fit so many characters in at once. See, that's the big thing right there. And ironically, it ties in with what I've been reading where everybody sounds the same. And to me, that's the biggest failure for a writer you can have well one of the biggest failures is when nobody has a distinctive voice and everybody sounds the same when they speak and especially if it's very distinctive and so that you didn't have that here now that being said though i did find uh, more so with rucka surprisingly as well too the dialogue always wasn't always didn't ring true often it was a little too um proper in how it was speaking or some of the terms is like people don't talk like that especially cops using you know five dollar words it doesn't fit kind of thing so there were a few moments like that but overall it was good and it was nice because again having the two different writers you had two different writing styles and it was apparent while still being a nice um nice blend it's still they worked well together Mm mm-hmm And what's really interesting about this particular time period that they chose to write this comic is it was right after a big shakeup 
with the actual Gotham Police Department in the comics. There was uh, corruption investigations. Harvey Bullock, you know, the most notable detective, ended up getting fired. Commissioner Gordon resigned. So it's largely a cast of unknown and new characters, kind of anchored by Rene Montoya, who is still one of the coolest, you know, stories in comics. And that just like Harley, she was established in the animated series before she was brought into the comics and you know she had that that supporting role but this was really a big breakout role for her specifically in addition to establishing a lot of other interesting detective characters she's a she's a cool character and she is fun to read and her story arc is really quite good it's it's a it's a lot of fun to read even though there's a lot of you know a lot of pain and what she's going through and all that she's being put through the ringer but the character always rings th- true and from like even when she's acting all tough right down to the very emotional moments especially at the end and you're and it always feels true to the character you're never like ah oh, that's not somebody wouldn't act like that it, she's a great great character yeah so starting off with the first story arc, which was only the first two issues, they needed something to bring the day shift and the night shift together. So they have these two detectives, uh, Charlie and Marcus, who are on the search for a missing teenager. And through their investigation, they just kind of happen upon Mr. Freeze, whereupon he actually kills Charlie. So these first two issues are the day shift and the night shift having to come together, you know. As with any police story, there's animosity between the two shifts over, you know, who's doing the better job and this and that, sharing the same office and having them come together to track down Mr. Freeze before Batman can get to him. And that's the interesting underlying thing behind this whole series is the cops, you know, they they accept Batman. They know he's part of Gotham, but they really it really gets under their skin that he does their job so much of the time. So they, this is a great story of them racing against time, doing legitimate, really good police work at the same time. Like, I really enjoy those aspects of the story before night can fall. <laughs> and again, it's like you were saying, too, it's uh, I'm reading this and I'm going back to Gotham, the TV show and where it's failing and different things like that. And then looking at this and that aspect of them rushing to solve this before Batman just swoops in and does it for them. And the way, especially driver, how much he hates Batman and that relationship that the two of them have. I loved that. It was fantastic. The tension is like palpable. You could, you can like, it was just fan. Again, it was fantastic. Especially once it reaches the point at the end of the investigation where they do realize this is something bigger than yeah. them yeah. and have to go to him for help. Because you know, at the end of the day, it's all about helping people and doing the right thing. But God, they hate it. Yeah. <laughs> and that brings us into the second story arc where it focuses, like I said, solely on the night shift where they want to solve Charlie's one outstanding case. And that is this missing girl who they do eventually find the body for and it becomes a murder investigation. So again, this focusing on the detective stories and the actual police work that's going on. That's what I enjoyed so much about this. In addition to the characters, in addition to the stories, how very real it seemed, which is very unusual for a comic story. 
I we watch. I you probably do as well. Most people do. Like a lot of cop drama kind of things. Um, I mean, I can look back all the way back from Hill Street Blues all the way to now kind of thing. We if a if a cop drama is well done, it's fun to watch kind of thing. Often though, you'll get whether it's an entire cop drama and a comic or scenes of it, it doesn't always feel like it rings true. Which I mean is it's hard for us because we're not cops so we don't really know what rings true or not sometimes but still you get that feeling and then with this though it for the most part it really did feel genuine it it felt believable again almost throughout i really i i liked that and when you're looking at what we're reading right now in comics with friggin' access and the stupidity of that, <laughs> some of the other stuff. And I was reading some, some DC stuff too. And I'm like, just shaking my head, sighing. And then I'm reading this and going, oh, you know, it proves you can have fantastic stories that really don't have much to do with people in tights. And it's just this tight character driven story that is, has got this fantastic not just story arc for like a few of the characters, but just the story in and of itself is fantastic. And I also really liked the way that they tied multiple cases together yeah. into one story with bringing the, the arsonist in. And I don't know, like for me, it wasn't until the very end that I started tying it together. Just like the detectives, maybe I was, I, I, I had a feeling they had to be connected, but the way everything connected together and the way the case was solved was actually pretty satisfying for me. The only thing I'll say about that, and I agree to a certain point, is that once they started dropping hints, then it was so bloody obvious from that point on. Everything that happened was like hitting you on the top of the head with the points like, it's this guy <laughs> and big flashing neon arrows pointing to him. So it, once, once it got to that point, I thought it got a little too heavy handed with the, the, the hints. But up until that point, yeah, it was really quite good. Mm-hmm. And that brings us into the last story arc that we're covering, which is the story that this entire comic is best known for. And that brings us back to the day shift with Greg Rucka and focusing on Renee Montoya, as we said, is kind of the poster character for the series because this is one of the biggest story arcs that DC has ever done. Not necessarily as far as, you know, storyline continuity impact, but just full on actual impact in the industry because this is where they decided to bring Renee out of the closet. And one of the big story hooks for this is revealing to the police and her family that yes, she is a lesbian and all of the drama that unfolds with that, like this was huge at the time and honestly still is because the industry hasn't moved past much past this yet. You know what else I like is in the same kind of way that um, addressing this is read through it and just – I didn't pick up on it until later on when I'm kind of analyzing it to – for what we're going to talk about and whatnot. But it's so well done that you don't really think about it. Read through it and look at how many characters of minorities are throughout Mm -hmm. in prominent roles throughout. You have more people who are either black or Hispanic or something throughout the story than you actually do white people. 
there's it's full, full, full of a wide range of characters. And again, it's so well done that it's not, hey, we're sticking in token, you know, whether it's a black or Hispanic or Chinese person or whatever, just so that we are trying to prove that we're diverse. No, this is diverse and it's so well written and, and, and done that you never really think about it. Because it's actually representative of society. Yeah, exactly. You, know, you walk into a room, there's not nine white guys and one other person there. It, yes, it's. I'm sure they made it a point to do so, but they did it in a way that, again, was realistic and, yeah. like, like I said, representative of what you would see in real life. Yeah. It's actually really funny that you bring that up. Uh, a few months ago, Comics Alliance ran an article where they broke down the big superhero teams and, you know, it's not meant to be anything scientific, but just kind of a, a, a place to start the discussion where they said, OK, this is how many people on the team are straight white guys. And this is how many are minorities or uh, gay or females and whatnot. And the the scale they used to break it down was the Harvey Renee index. Right. All the white guys were Harvey Bullocks and everybody else was represented as a Rene Montoya. Like I said, this this story arc, in addition to you know being important within this comic, has been very socially important for the entire comic industry. And yet it happened. And how much more have we seen like this since then? Mm-hmm. So basically anything that's continued to be written by Greg Rook, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because we saw when we talked about uh, 52 a while back, he continued Renee's story in that comic. And, you know, her relationship with Kate Kane was one of the major story points in there. But like you said, it still wasn't forced. It was just the way the character yeah, was. Exactly. Yeah. So for the storyline itself, you know, it's not like they just went, oh, yeah, she's a lesbian now and made that the focal point of the story. That was just kind of a motivating factor into this big corruption investigation against Renee where the private investigator that basically took the picture that outed her ended up dead. So, of course, Renee becomes suspect number one in his murder. And it goes on and on with, you know, basically people who had it out against Renee are coming after her and turning up dead. So, again, you have this very gripping drama of basically the police department turning against itself, uh, focused on her with not just the the murder investigation, but some of the characters' various prejudices popping up, and like it, it was it was a little hard to read at points, but that's not a bad thing. It it just played out in a certain way. It was it was interesting as well. And here's where Rucka shines, where you have once she's outed, all of the individual interactions that she has with all of the other cast members suddenly becomes very telling of who they are as people in something that simple, um, like just a few lines even sometimes or a scene, you suddenly know so much more about each of these other people in how they treat her. And that's huge. Like if you look at the scene between her and the captain, where the captain's saying, you know, once that Pandora's box is open, if you leave it open, if if you're opening it, that's it. You can't close it again. And it's just a really good scene and very telling, while still very subtle and leaving some mystery behind there, of who the captain is as a person as well, too. I Yeah. I thought it was fantastic. Mm-hmm. And then you also have the stuff involving her family with her brother, oh, God, who's yeah. been kind of covering for her over the years. And then, of course, her finally needing to tell her parents and her relationship with her lover is 
like it's a strong very good relationship where she sat outside in the car for a couple hours while Renee went through all the drama with her very conservative parents like again just overall fantastically written story yeah the only issue I had was the big twist at the end with Two-Face and I think a lot of that might have to do with I missed the story involving Two-Face and Renee previously in her career it's just you have this very serious very well-written story and just throwing in such a big wild card like Two-Face. The story kind of twisted a bit at the end that didn't work too well for me. For me, when I was reading it, and I know exactly what you mean, but I reminded myself, this is freaking Gotham. Mm -hmm. So in a world, a city like Gotham, this is kind of the norm where some grand scheme is done by either you know two-face or penguin or scarecrow um so it kind of made sense that it would be something that grand the thing that i had a problem with is that it's it's i equate it to the same as the woman in jeopardy trope where you can have this really strong female character and i talked about this when i wrote the article about this season of sword art online the anime where you have a fantastically strong female character with a rich backstory and you're so loving it and she's coming to grips with everything that's going on but in the end she's saved by a man and here it just happens that the man is batman but they've spent all of these issues where they're trying to do their job without Batman just taking over. And yeah, they needed some help for uh, Mr. Freeze and stuff like that. But here, instead of them being the ones who, um, who did their jobs and won at the end, they were rescued by someone. So that's the point that I had a problem with. That's perfectly valid. I mean, it, didn't bother me as much, but I can definitely see that point of view. Yeah. Like I said, by, by the end of the story, I was kind of a little off the rails with it all together myself anyway. So Batman showing up was just another, Oh, here's a thing. Yeah. So the only, but problem, still overall it was. Fantastic. Oh yeah. Yeah. The only problem I had was that. And again, some of the writing, it just didn't feel genuine and how the people were speaking. The narrative was off, not through the entire thing, but, for quite a bit of it, it just, especially for some reason, ruckus stuff, some of the scenes with different people, you're going like, yeah, that people don't talk like that. But again, not consistently throughout, just here and there. Mm-hmm. And just to kind of cap it off, this particular storyline uh, for that year actually did win the Eisner for best story. Right. It, it won the everything for best story, but most notably the Eisner. Yeah. So that's, there, there's the story, the, the series carried on for another couple dozen issues. I think it went up to like, 36 or so before it finally uh, petered out just because uh, Michael Lark had moved on to other stuff and Brubaker and Rooka didn't really want to continue it without him. So they just let it go and focused on carrying these characters forward in other series like we saw in 52 and whatnot. But it's definitely a really cool point in DC's history where it's kind of what they're coming back around to now finally where they were publishing different sorts of stories not everything had to be this big superhero story and i i really enjoyed like i've read all of them years ago obviously when they were in uh paperback collections but i really enjoyed this whole series and it's 
definitely something worth reading if you're interested in it. Mm-hmm. It's definitely a heck of a lot better than Gotham. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, jumping into what else we've been reading. Uh, first, I want to talk about X-Force issue 10, which uh, was a one-shot issue where Cy Spurrier bought, brought back, I can't even remember his name, Nowhere Man, Nobody, something like that, which is the goofy character that he established in the X-Men Legacy number 300 special issue. Did you read either of those? Uh, sorry, the, the old ones or this X-Force? This X-Force or the Legacy 300 that I came read, out a couple months ago. I read this. I probably read the Legacy. I just can't remember. But yes, I... It's where this guy has this bizarre mutant power that everybody instantly forgets about him. So the fun thing in X-Men Legacy was it showed him fighting, you know, Magneto and Apocalypse and all the X-Men villains and basically being the deus ex machina that saves the day in these horrible stories. And of course, everybody immediately forgets about it. So we have this fun X-Force story built upon the same concept of them chasing him around the base. And as soon as he escapes, they forget what they were going after. I absolutely loved the, the whole gag of them keep continually coming back to the coffee maker because, of course, that's where Nemesis would go and finding the note, starting everything over here. This is just that typical goofy, ridiculous size Spurrier story that in the end actually works. I didn't like it. I actually read this one and issue 11 yesterday, last night, and I really didn't like it at all. Mm-hmm. I actually – it was way too goofy and ridiculous and i mean what i've been liking about x-force up until these is that yeah there are moments of goofy in there that you can kind of laugh at and all that but it's still serious enough themed throughout that it's it's not just a farce this felt more like a deadpool comic than it did an x-force comic and and this is another one where the the language, the, the the narrative from different people didn't feel genuine. It it felt so off and bizarre for both of those issues. It, it was, if, if I had read this, I would not think that Spurrier had written this. I would think that it was someone with a lot less experience. It just, I did not like these at all. Plus, for both of those, now we've had dark moments where you see that these people have a lot of issues and whatnot. And yeah, there's a little murderous streak kind of thing in Psylocke and whatnot, and Phantom X is losing his crap. But these two issues took it way over the edge to the part where they're damn near straight-up villains at points, the way that they're behaving. So... I don't know. I really, really didn't like these last two issues at all. I'm with you with uh, things going a little too far, especially like we saw in issue 11. I just I had a lot of fun with issue 10. I like that. I I, I was hoping Spurrier would bring that specific character back at some point. So I just had fun with that particular Mm. story. I kind of thought the character was. I don't know. I really had no use for it at all. And what they're doing, what what he's doing with Phantom X now is... My I don't God, know what he's doing with freaking, Phantom X now. He didn't jump the shark. Like, he did. There was a pool of sharks. This is so far over now that it's like, okay, well, it's not even funny or cute anymore. It's just stupid for me, at mm-hmm. least, is how I see it. Uh, briefly touching on Axis stuff, 
really disappointed with the uh, storytelling, how Magneto went and rounded up all the supervillains. It was like a montage over three pages, like where he appealed to their greater sense of nobility. Not not very effective. Issue three, more of the same stuff. But Deadpool was great in that issue. <laughs> Deadpool was great, but it turned into yet another yeah, yet another AVX. AVX. Like, are you That's serious? Exactly what it was, and then making the big speech about leaving and this and that, and the 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 going toe to toe with Falcon slash Captain America, and it was utter stupidity. And then Evan turns into this massive buff dude it's like well how did that why what's going on what did we there's when did this happen yeah what the fact that it happened okay how and when and why are kind of the important parts <laughs> and this whole thing with wanting to keep Brit skull alive and figure out what's going on and the everything all of it i'm reading it going no no this is stupid absolute stupidity from beginning to end i and i okay i will give you the bits with deadpool yes yeah the, that was the only redeeming quality of this entire three issues up to this point was deadpool yeah that was it and i mean here's another one and this is freaking remender where did you notice it's like apparently now everybody has to be throwing out spider-man type quips at all times Everybody's got to be a sarcastic ass during a battle because you were reading this and it did not feel genuine. It felt like everybody was, you know, told whether you're a hero or villain, you're going to be making sarcastic and trying to be cutesy jokes while you're fighting. And it just doesn't work. It's it's just, I mean, read some of these things. It's, it's ridiculous. Like the the stuff with Carnage and Hobgoblin and oh all the God. other things. And they're all trying to make Spider-Man type chokes while they're fighting and things like that. And then you also have, again, the, the freaking Enchantress chick, Loki. They're all making these little Spider-Man type jokes. And it's like, what? where's the distinct personalities of all these people? Because it doesn't come through at all at all. It's It was, I I thought it was poorly written. I don't disagree. Yeah. And this is something we've seen over the years where otherwise really good writers, when they get into this big event tentpole style of series, it just – they can't handle it. And it's nothing against them. Just not every writer is right for every story. Mm-hmm. Like we saw it with uh, Fraction and Fear Itself. I loved just about everything Fraction wrote before and after Fear Itself. But Fear Itself was a complete mess just because – He's not the type of writer that's right for that type of story. Anyway, on to some better stuff. Did you read the Legends of Baldur's Gate comic? No. This was so much fun. And it, focusing around fan favorite character Minsk and his companion, the miniature giant space hamster Boo. Of course, Zub had to write this comic. Like reading it and even in the art style, it's almost as if Rex is cosplaying as Minsk. <laughs> Completely unique, you know, not, you know, not, it's not like he's writing the same character, but of course they're two giant bald dudes, first of all. So visually I just have that kind of setting in the back of my head and he's such a, I don't want to say goofy because that's kind of a disservice, but a bizarre character where 
just his you played the game you know anybody who played the game knows he's he's not right in the head but as far as like a first issue to establish a story really enjoyed it artwork was phenomenal let me see who did the art on that real quick max dunbar he did amazing on it loved it cool and then finally i read an issue of the walking dead roger oh my god what the hell are they up to now do you know why i read an issue of the walking dead do I have to guess? They gave me a free one in this month's loot crate. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it took for me to go back and try another issue. What, what, uh, which issue was it? Uh, 132. Okay. So what are they up to? I, I couldn't tell you. <laughs> it's it's kind of just picking up. It's it's not – it doesn't really give a lot of establishment as far as the story is concerned. But I guess the, the whole war with Negan is over and they've moved on. They have – multiple cities that are kind of working together now. Maggie's in control of one, uh, Rick's in control of the other. So it's this nice golden age uh, of them, you know, relaxing. And actually, finally, they finally did something right. The problem with this is even by the end of the issue, when a new threat is established, with any zombie, this is an issue with any zombie story, eventually humanity reaches the point where they're winning the battle. You know, it's they're not in shock. They're not always on the run. They know what they have to do to survive and they get better. And whenever a zombie story reaches that point, it's kind of supposed to end. <laughs> and that's the issue here. There is absolutely no danger. There's no sense of dread. Like when the the hunters or whatever, the scouts or whatever these guys are, are surrounded by zombies they immediately dispatch, you know, an entire horde with just the four of them because they've progressed to the point where the zombies aren't a threat anymore. So, of course, you have to have another human threat pop up, and it's just, it's not the same. The Walking Dead, like any zombie story, just needs to end. It needs to have a resolution at this point because there's no sense of danger, which is the only thing that kept it going for the, you know, hundred-ish issues that were actually great. That Now that that's gone, there's really nothing to drive it forward. I think that the only thing that he would be relying on to drive it forward is the idea that it's never really gone because it's in the people. So all you need is another outbreak where, you know, a city gets overrun by them because a couple of people die and it starts this chain reaction where all of a sudden you can have, you know, a full city full of zombies so you're back to that problem yet again and then i think again he's relying on the idea of like you said turning it into a post-apocalyptic story versus a zombie post-apocalyptic story where you're dealing with the you know assholes of the future who just want to take over everything so then that's part of the reason why i got so fed up with the negan story because i was like ah this is just utter stupidity at this point i wasn't enjoying it see and that's the thing because you know over the previous issues we got that in addition to the zombie stuff you know with the governor and any of the number a number of other you know threats and antagonists they ran up against so now that i said the zombies aren't the threat and it's just the human people they're kind of retelling stories we've already seen with negan and i guess this new group they said it's the dread and the danger just isn't there anymore and it's it's fundamentally changed the story yeah all right, what have you got for us? Well, you covered a bunch that I was going to, so that's good. Um, new is Cyclops, number six. It is the first one that Layman started okay. on. So they're 
off the planet and they're just kind of immediately being boarded by um, big bad space villain taken over kind of thing. So that story art that Layman talked about is boom, front and center right away, immediately issue six. I'm assuming you haven't read this yet. Not yet, no. I got to tell you honestly, and man, we love Layman. Although I don't always love him when he's writing things other than two. <laughs> yeah. yeah, his detective was a little hit or miss. Yes, and this, I'm going to keep reading it to see what he does with it going forward. But this was a whole lot of stuff we've kind of already seen done before. It was fairly predictable throughout and there were some pretty groan worthy moments at some points where you're like, Oh, come on, seriously. So I, I really wasn't digging it. I got to tell you. And mm. the, the whole premise as well of, you know, him staying behind on this ship to try to save the others by being infiltrated in. <laughs> they have a scene. And a part of this is, the art and how it's done too but they have a scene where scott just freaking hauls off with an optic blast to his old man to pretend like they're fighting and hits him hard now the art was weird and how it was drawn afterwards but the point is is that there's the people who are taking over the ship are standing behind him just arms crossed looking no big deal Basically, Scott could just turn around, flatten them all, problem solved. <laughs> and it's not like he hasn't, he led the freaking young X-Men, plus has seen tons of other battles and stuff like that, fought far tougher than these freaking pirates. And yet here he's going to pretend like he has to infiltrate them from the inside to save the others, some of whom have been jettisoned off in, an, in a, a, a cargo little thing and are likely to die. Of course, they won't, but... So there's a whole bunch of stuff. Like, he, he would just turn around. Give me a break. This is Scott Summers still. <laughs> he would just turn around and just, they're all dead. You know? So it, it just didn't work for me. Mm-hmm. Um, yet more with the death of Wolverine. The Logan legacy is going on. And so the next issue, number two, was with X-23. And her story after he dies and what she's going through and stuff. Some of it was okay, but some of it was like, like, of course she has to have that Wolverine mentality of just things going wrong. Just, I'm taking off. Just leave me alone. I'm going to deal with this on my own. But then what happens when she's out on her own and things like that, dressed up like a hooker at points even, (laughs) You know, and dealing with a Canadian superhero, I'm going, oh, dear Lord. <laughs> oh, yeah. And the villain is this, what was the joke? It's like a hair, like a, a, a Ford, uh, what's his name? Oh, my God. I can't remember his name now. The, the mayor of Toronto. Oh, Rob. Rob Ford. Ford. Sorry. Again, heavily medicated people. Uh, yeah, Rob Ford in a tutu. So... You have this very large woman in a pink dress, and she apparently controls a whole bunch of young people who are going out and attacking clubs and shooting for no other reason than because they're going through teenage angst. It was, 
it was ludicrous. And then, of course, it has to end with a cliched piece of crap that she comes back and, oh, everything's all right now. I... This... <laughs> Are people actually enjoying this event? You would know more than me. I don't know. Okay, I didn't know if you'd been reading <laughs> up on it or not. Because it's, it's For such an important event, it's gone completely under the radar. Okay, well, like, I believe it's, it. It's just forgotten. Like, even when the actual death miniseries is happening, it's just like, oh, okay, he's dead. Like, there is nothing. It's not good. That's why. It's just well, not good. Well, we've seen good. plenty of bad things that people at least care about. Yeah, but it's still not even... It doesn't drive us to care at all. At all. Now, part of that, of course, is the fact that deaths aren't permanent. We know that. So this is just yet another story arc. It's that simple. He's coming back. Jesus Christ, they're talking about bringing Xavier back in the body of the Red Skull. They can chip away at a little bit of I'm not going to lie. That story would be hilarious. Depends on who writes it. <laughs> Only if he's still in the wheelchair, too. <laughs> and has team-ups with Deadpool. <laughs> but anyways, so yeah, so this is just, there's no, nobody cares. There's no, I don't know, yeah. I certainly don't. And the problem, the main problem is it's so poorly freaking written that, for the most part, that you're like, ah, oh, this is terrible. It's either cliched stupidity or boring or even the people in the stories don't really care or aren't moved as much if you're reading something and somebody died in there and there's no weight to it for them how are you as the reader expected to really care we don't have to look any further than the death of spider-man in the ultimates universe which there's another example of death not meaning a damn thing but at the time and how profoundly moved everyone was. And the setting of that funeral. And and May. <laughs> and Gwen. And you're like freaking tearing up reading that. Well, here, nobody cares. Nobody. I mean, yeah, they care. But it, there's nothing moving at all about it. Like this whole thing has been just all hype and no substance at all. As opposed to Spider-Man. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to let you talk. I'm not going to take it over like last time. But as soon as I saw the cover, I was ready to drive to New York and protest outside Dan Slott's apartment. What are you talking about? <laughs> With what? Amazing Spider-Man. Which one? I'm talking about uh, the last one. Where it finished yeah, up where the team it up. had the fall of Spider-Girl on yes. the cover. <laughs> I, before I even read it, I was prepared for the worst. But it wasn't. It was awesome. Oh, I'm not going to disagree. <laughs> and it was Ramus doing the art for it, which is a win-win right there. But her taking off with little Ben. Oh. <laughs> They're setting up the characters, these characters so well with these little backstories. I'm so happy with how this is being handled that we're still getting stories now so that it can hopefully all... Everything will tie in and mesh better later on instead of what we normally see in these events where it's just haphazard all over the damn place. And continuities don't always jive. Whereas now with it kind of, you get a regular story plus the little side story to build up towards it. Hopefully when it all gets to that boiling point, everything's going to match up so that you're not, 
you know, continuity actually works. And by that point, you've really gotten to care about all of these individual Spider-Man, Spider-Girls, Spider-Hams, whoever. <laughs> this was great. That's something Slot has always done well of setting up the next story while the current one is still going on. Like that's been his strength since he started writing Spider-Man through all the big stuff they've done. Yeah, but this it has got to be him and the other writers for the other. Oh, true. Like yes. twenty ninety nine and all the other stuff too. Yeah. So, but yeah, and the story finishing off with him and Ms. Marvel was also freaking awesome. amazing. Was just great. Not just because they finally made some sense of freaking villain dude that they brought back, the Clash, but. Uh, but just the stuff with with them. And then even just the little side stuff with Silk was fun to read. It wasn't a ton. It was a little ridiculous with the costume thing. But, I mean, that's the I'm willing to accept she has incredible control of her webs. But to basically make an entire yeah. costume, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. That, yeah. But whatever. <laughs> yeah. Whatever. Exactly. It's I, comic books. I actually preferred the other one myself. But apparently my vote don't mean crap. But anyways, yeah, so I I really enjoyed it. It was cool. And uh, that's going to wrap me up for the week, I guess. All right, then. So moving into this week's new releases, Marvel is bringing us all new X-Men number 33. I know we said Death of Wolverine has been kind of a oversight, but you better bet I'm going to read Death of Wolverine, Deadpool, and Captain America. <laughs> we also have a launch of a new series, uh, issue one of Deathlock. We have Guardians of the Galaxy number 20, Nova number 22, and the final issue of at least the current incarnation of Thunderbolts with issue 32. From DC, we have Batman Eternal number 30, Earth 2 World's End number 3, Swamp Thing Annual number 3, and Wonder Woman number 35, which is the grand finale from uh, Azarello and Chang on that comic. Dark Horse brings us Aliens, Fire and Stone, number two. IDW has Transformers, More Than Meets the Eye, number 34. Image brings us Black Science, num- Black Science number 10. Low, number four. Saga, number 24. Southern Bastards, number five. And Wayward, number three. And from Valiant, we have the big anniversary-ish celebration issue of Archer and Armstrong, number 25, which has one of the favorite covers I've seen in a long time on that one. I'm actually really looking forward to it. So that's going to wrap us up here at Comic Book Informer. As always, you can find us online at comicbookinformer.com or on Twitter at CB Informer. So until next week, thanks for listening. 